This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Kerry Stairs, and I'm a partner at law firm Charles Russell Speechley's, where I lead our firm's responsible business programme. What that means on a day-to-day basis is that I get to work with stakeholders across our business to interrogate, understand, and strive to improve our social and environmental impact. I also work with our clients to learn more about the environmental, social and governance or ESG issues that are material to them and to ensure that we're providing them with the right advice and support, both in our traditional role as legal advisors and as collaborative business partners. I also get to spend time talking to our intermediaries and our wider networks to explore opportunities for thought leadership and collaboration in the complex and fast moving world of ESG. The conversations I have day to day are so rich in insights from our clients and intermediaries, many of whom are true sustainability leaders, that we decided to record and share them as a podcast series. Today I'm speaking to Peter Dickinson, General Counsel and Chief of Staff at Mighty Group PLC, where he plays a pivotal role in the development and delivery of the group's ESG or social value strategy, as Mighty calls it. In a former life, he was a partner in private practice and for many years led the corporate team at Mayer Brown. As you'll hear from our discussion, Mighty is an ESG leader in its sector, and Peter himself is a real evangelist for corporate leadership on social and environmental impact. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. If you have feedback or would like to connect on the topics covered in this podcast, please don't hesitate to contact me via the Charles Russell Speechley's website. We're incredibly proud to work with Mighty as a client, not least, Peter, because you are true sustainability leaders. Um, We'll get to the substance of some of your sustainability and social value commitments later in our discussion, but the list of commitments and firsts and and accolades is really long and impressive. Um, Mighty is committed to be zero carbon emissions by 2025 and further committed to be carbon neutral, including scope three emissions by 2035. Mighty boasts the largest fully electric vehicle fleet in the UK. My personal favourite is that you have developed the UK's first electric zero emissions winter gritter, known as Gritter Thunberg. Um, And of course, you've been awarded leadership rankings by CDP and ranked the number one ESG business support service company globally by Sustainalytics, which is a leading ESG ratings agency. I gave your role a brief introduction, but I know that in fact you wear many hats at Mighty. And perhaps just to set the scene, I, I wondered if you might tell us a bit about those different hats and how wearing them, you play a leading role in the development and delivery of Mighty's sustainability strategy or social value strategy as, as you call it. So Kerry, thank you very much indeed for having me this afternoon. Um, my title is uh, General Counsel Chief of Staff. Uh, I joined Mighty four years ago and initially uh, my role was, I guess, a more traditional general counsel role, but very swiftly uh, it expanded to uh, respond to the demands of the, the business. Uh, I guess the first additional role I took on was to head our M&A activity, and uh, I'm responsible for the execution of the strategy. So most recently, we acquired Interserve, which has enabled us to be the leading FM uh, business in the UK. Uh, in terms of my sort of chief of staff role, um, I am uh, responsible for essentially sponsoring uh our HR team, led by our group, our HR director, uh, Jasmine Hudson. And Jazz and I together work to ensure that the way in which we support our 78,000 colleagues across the country is done in a way which we hope will make us uh, the employer of choice within our sector, but more particularly to ensure the way in which we support our colleagues and the business is aligned to our strategy. And at the core of our strategy is 
one of the key pillars, our social values or ESG uh, commitments. Uh, in terms of our social values team, which comprises a, a number of people, but also what we call, call the Mighty Foundation, which is a charitable organization through which we deliver some of our social value uh, projects. Uh, they report through to me uh, also. Uh, I'm also responsible for QHSE, for risk, uh, for property, which again is a, a useful area to have responsibility for if you're wearing a, an ESG hat. And lastly, I'm also uh, exec sponsor for our specialist division. And that comprises three businesses, landscaping, waste, and also care and custody, which is a, a business through which we uh, provide immigration uh, center services to the home office. Uh, we also provide support in relation to uh, areas like uh, migrants landing uh, on the South Coast at present. And whilst one might not necessarily look at those immediately through an ESG lens, the way in which you deliver those services in a way which is respectful for the people involved, you know, that can have uh, an appropriate ESG focus. And for us, you know, the theme of ESG runs right the way through our business and through our strategy. And we've recently uh, developed a, a new strategy. We've moved from what we called our transformation strategy, which we declared had been completed uh, earlier this year. And we're now in our growth strategy. And growth is all around uh, margin enhancement, cash generation, but actually at the core of it is also doing it in a way which is going to take forward and develop our social value contribution. Can we start with, with the why? Um, that's not my phrase, that's <laughs> someone else's. But I think it's a useful place to start. You've characterised ESG, social value and sustainability as running through the business vertically and, and horizontally, that it, it, it touches on every single thing that you do and that it's a core part of your growth strategy. Can you tell us a bit about why? How would you characterise the driving force behind social value and sustainability at Mighty? If I, uh, it, Mighty is essentially is a people business. I, I mentioned we have 78,000 people and they are our most important asset. And ensuring that we support them in a way which enables them to develop their careers, support their families, create opportunities for them is something absolutely at the heart of what we do. And many of our contracts involve us employing people to deliver you know, primarily manual type tasks. And very often you know, the way in which those contracts are structured, our ability to pay those colleagues high rates of, of wages are very different, difficult. So you know, we have over the last five years, been looking at ways to improve the terms and conditions of our colleagues. And that may be through us becoming a foundation wage employer, which means that whenever we bid for any work, even if our clients are asking us to set the wage levels of our, of our colleagues at a particular level, we will also put in a bid which is based on foundation wage rates. And now, that is all about us trying to enhance the, the experience of our colleagues, to retain them, and to make them see working at Mighty as, as the best opportunity for them within the FM business. Now, when we began doing that, social values, ESG, perhaps had less prominence, but we have always been focused on ensuring that the experience of our colleagues is as, as good it could, as it could possibly be. What we recognised when 
ESG began to capture the imagination of the city pages was that if you looked at Mighty's business and you identified in particular what our carbon footprint was based on, actually there were a number of things we could do relatively easily in terms of levers to pull, where we could quite rapidly, and we would say radically, change Mighty's carbon footprint, and in so doing, raise Mighty's profile away from being simply a facilities management company to being a company which delivers a very broad range of facilities management services, but is also one of the leading ESG companies. And that decision was made around three years ago when we concluded that having regard to the nature of our business, we could move very quickly. And that was why Phil Bentley, our CEO, made that very ambitious commitment to deliver carbon neutral by 2025. And we are on track to do that. I don't seek for a moment to minimize the challenge of seeking to do that, but actually about 85% of our carbon footprint arises out of our vehicle fleet. We have one of the largest vehicle fleets in the UK, some 8,000 vehicles. 2,000 of those, or almost 2,000, it will be 2,000 by the end of the year, are now fully electric, and we are accelerating the pace at which we roll out. Um, The other point I think to make is, in order to be able to have support of shareholders to be able to access capital markets, et cetera. There are many organizations who provide funds who are increasingly focusing themselves on which companies they are prepared to invest in. And having appropriate ESG credentials is part of what will enable you to access capital. At this point in time, the fact you may not be as ESG-centric as others won't necessarily exclude you, but we think over time it will become increasingly important. And for us, the the last two, three years have given us an opportunity to to refocus our business and also to reposition it and to really demonstrate the value which we believe we can contribute both to our clients and wider society. So is it fair then to characterise the development of sustainable thinking at Mighty as something that began out of a genuine desire to to do the right thing, to treat people as they deserve to be treated but that over recent years the the commercial benefits of being a company that prioritizes social and now environmental impacts are also now part of that analysis i think that's a very fair summary Um, and you know for us we we think the reason we're very we're excited and pleased to be so focused on esg we we see there's it's a win-win situation for us if we can improve the terms and conditions of our colleagues, we can become recognised as the employer of choice in our sector, and at the same time, deliver services in a way which minimises the carbon footprint of ourselves, but also our clients, then for us, that that is a win-win situation. And what I've spoken about to date is, is really around Mighty and its own ESG targets. But actually what we do as a business, I guess this is the the second limb of the way in which we can, we believe, contribute to the whole ESG agenda, is that we provide services to support the facilities of our clients. And through the delivery of those services, we can minimise our clients' carbon footprint. And for us, we think one of the big macro trends over the next decade will be decarbonisation. And that is clearly something, if you have regard to the services we deliver, 
be they engineering services, be they energy services, be they power services, cleaning services, whatever. All of those services can be dealt, delivered in a way which enables our clients to achieve their own carbon neutral aspirations. And you know, for example, the experience we've gained through decarbonizing our own fleet, that is something which we now offer to our clients. We can assist them in that journey, whether it's installation of EV charging points you know, at their facilities or it's helping them to uh, minimize their energy utilization at, at their buildings. And part of our, our, our drive, and we believe that in terms of FM companies, we have uh, an advantage in terms of our use of technology. You know, we will have within our clients' buildings sensors at every desk. We can tell you how often a desk is used. We can tell you what the ambient temperature is, what the CO2 content is in the air. Now, those, that information is, is hugely useful because it can enable you to work out what is the most efficient way to use that building. We, through our energy purchasing build, um, operation, you know, we only buy uh, non-fossil fuel related power. Uh, and that is what we do on behalf of clients. Our waste business uh, is based not on us being paying to, as traditional waste companies are by you know, the number of tons of waste which we dispose of on behalf of our clients, but on the amount of waste we reduce in the first place and we and minimize in terms of delivery to landfill sites. So again, our business, just simply where it sits in the way in which we support our customers, we have found with the development of ESG, sustainability, focus on environmental matters, actually we can play a big part in all of our clients' own efforts to be on the same journey that we are on. It's interesting, there are, there are clear parallels between the way you describe that two-pronged approach at MITE and the way we think about it at CRS and the way I'm sure many law firms are thinking about it. So there's our own sustainability, our own impact as a business, getting our own house in order. But then there's the question of the advisory services that we provide to clients. So how can we be better, more effective advisors? And part of that um, and part of this type of conversation is listening to the client voice, understanding what uh, ESG opportunities and challenges exist for our clients' businesses, and then working out how we as lawyers can play a role um, in helping them to achieve those objectives. Um, can we go back to the, to the discussion about building a consensus internally within an organisation like Mighty that, that something like ESG or sustainability is critical? So it's, it's clear you've got that top-down drive and commitment. But going back to the way you characterise the business, where ESG runs through every level and through all parts of the business, how do you achieve that? Well, we were very fortunate that we have within our board uh, a group of individuals in terms of our non-executives, from the chairman down, all absolutely are focused on uh, us achieving our ESG goals. And indeed, it was Derek Mapp, our chairman, who you know, three years ago, brought as a, an agenda item to the board the need for us to get recognition for ESG activities and to focus on you know, which were the right organisations to uh, seek accreditation from, to engage with them, to understand how they measured performance and to swiftly draw up a, a roadmap by which we would be able to create 
activities within MITEI, which would support our credentials and our applications to, to be recognized. And we have a social values committee, which is a subcommittee of the board chaired by Baroness Kuti, Philippa Kuti, and she is enormously passionate in terms of everything we do. So we have that very high top-down support of, of ESG. Phil Bentley, our CEO, is equally passionate about it. But right the way across the organization, people are fully engaged. And we're delivering these kind of services to our clients day in, day out. So it's become, I would say, enshrined within our organization. What we do do, we believe you, you were talking about the importance of as advisors to be following your own path on ESG so you can be credible in terms of the advice you give and, and using your own learnings to help shape the advice that you give to clients. Yeah, we very much believe we have to lead by example. So throughout our organization, we minimize waste, we have our electric vehicles, we've been on non-fossil related uh, power for, for a couple of years. You know, everything we do is done, one, because it's the right thing to do, but also because it enables us to demonstrate to our clients what are the benefits of doing it. And when clients come and visit our own sites, they can see it firsthand. This is how it operates. These are the benefits of, of, of doing it. And I think our frontline staff, I think all of them, I don't think there's anybody in, candidly, in the UK who uh, listens to the news, reads a paper, who is not aware of issues like climate change and any parent is rightly concerned about the future for their children. I think it's it's not a difficult sell to say to all of our colleagues that you know we aspire to have a zero carbon footprint in 20, by 2025. All of us can play a role in doing that and to encourage them to think of other ways in which we can improve the way in which we operate. And I think, you know, it's it, in many ways, if you look across society as a whole, you look at the coverage in the paper, we have COP26 coming up in Glasgow in, in only a month's time. It is absolutely at the forefront of, of what people are doing. And I think that, you know, increasingly, companies will be measured by that. You know, we ourselves, through our procurement policy, we want to see companies that we work with and are our suppliers following a strong ESG agenda. Uh, I think it will become increasingly important for businesses if they want to be able to be successful. I think there's going to be a much more vigorous review of who large corporates work with. If you go back you know, a decade or so, modern slavery was a major issue. And you know, ensuring that the right terms and conditions were flowed down through the supply chain was absolutely essential. I think we'll see ESG having that same kind of drive and uh, flow through uh, over time. And I think that, that that would be a great thing to occur. I want to come on in a little bit to talk about that um, downward pressure through the supply chain. Um, but can I ask just um, one final question on on motivation? Has the COVID-19 pandemic had any effect at all internally at MIT on your, on your ESG thinking or strategy? Or, or do, do you think about ESG and approach it very much as you did pre-pandemic? I think the, the biggest change for us through the pandemic was uh, the external perception of the value of our frontline colleagues. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned that you know, the sort of the first big activity that we did, which falls within the ESG umbrella, albeit it wasn't recognized as such, was our focus on our frontline staff. Um, 
through the pandemic, some 66,000 of our colleagues continued working day in, day out, and delivering service on in support of critical infrastructure. Was it either running testing centers for the uh, NHS, cleaning hospitals, uh, building Nightingale hospitals, a whole range of activities. Uh, and we saw a change in our clients' view of the value that our clients deliver. And that for us is a really important thing because we can only enable ourselves, Mighty, to provide better benefits for our colleagues, particularly around wage rates, if our clients share that journey with us. Because you know, as a business, although we uh, have revenues which uh, are in excess of three billion, you know, we make around four percent margin, net margin. It's it's relatively low, and in delivering the services that we do, there's, there's risk involved, there's a huge amount of management and activity. What we don't have are margins which enable us to unilaterally say, you know, tomorrow we're going to pay every single colleague within Mighty, wherever they work, uh, foundation wage. We simply can't do that. And we need to have people recognize the value of what our colleagues are delivering and be prepared to pay for that. Yeah. And I think COVID has caused clients to, I think, reassess the value. You know, we, we are the largest provider of cleaning services in the UK and uh, we're the largest provider of security services. But in relation to cleaning, cleaning was almost the sort of the poor cousin. People saw cleaners in the background. You know, they would come in very early or they would come in late. And I don't think people assess what the value of that really was. In a COVID world where you need to be in environments which are spotlessly clean and COVID safe. They have a critical role. Same with ensuring operating theatres can be available at all times. And that's the, the change in perception. What we hope is that people won't forget that and that you know, notwithstanding the challenges and pressures that we're all still under because of the lingering impact of COVID on the economy, we hope that over time we will get continuing and increased support to enable us to follow the sort of social agenda of improving the loss of our frontline colleagues in terms of higher levels of wages. Well, let's hope that's right. And I think if we can characterise COVID as having shone perhaps the brightest spotlight to date on businesses as social actors who, through their everyday decision making, can have a very real impact on the day-to-day -day lives of, of ordinary people, um, perhaps, fingers crossed, um, that, that will produce lasting change and a, a reassessment of value that you've talked about will, Very much. will stick. And I would say that when I talk to businesses, to client organisations who are at a rather earlier stage in their sustainability journey, if we can put it like that, the most common question that I'm asked is, how do we tackle this in a strategic way? How do we take a strategic approach to developing an ESG policy or, or, or approach? Um, and so we, we have conversations about things like materiality. So taking a step back and looking at your business and asking okay, which E and S and G issues are material to our bottom line in terms of the risks that they present and which are material um, looking at the impact that they have on, on stakeholders, whether that's uh, the human capital of a business or society or the, the natural environment. And um, we've talked a bit about that kind of strategic thinking in Mighty's 
context. So you you identified decarbonisation of of the fleet as some as an obvious priority, an obvious area where through uh, some investment you could make rapid progress. And um, is there anything else you can tell us about that type of materiality assessment at Mighty? What what some other priorities are for you given your business and what you do, and perhaps. Um, if you're willing to be candid with us, what some of the biggest challenges are as you see them? Sure. Well, I, I guess in terms of, you know, what our, our overall uh, strategy is, is is based around, it it is the continuing, achieve, ensuring that we can achieve our, our sort of decarbonisation goals. It is around, yeah, I guess, I guess our focus will continue to be around our, our frontline colleagues. We think that is absolutely critical. Uh, one of the things we didn't mention in as a post-COVID impact is shortages of available employees and linked not solely to COVID, but of course also it's around Brexit. So we, in, in seeking to enhance and focusing on improving the lot of our frontline colleagues, there is a vested interest in terms of us as an organisation. You know, we need large numbers of the people. Our business is expanding. If we get awarded material contracts, be it for government or private sector, we may need many thousands of additional staff. And we need to be able to persuade people to come and spend their lives with us and be on a journey and advance. So I think, you know, the way in which we deal with our employees will be absolutely critical and remain at the heart of everything we do. Um, Decarbonisation and, and the move to EVs is, is one area. Um, energy efficiency is an area that we're also very, very focused on around all of our buildings. You know, we've carried out assessments of those to determine what their, their BREAM ratings are. And we're looking at ways in which we can ensure that those buildings are as efficient as possible um, and that their whole footprint is, is as, as light as is uh, capable of being delivered. I guess what we're also looking at is not only within this sort of is using Mighty as a, a sort of vehicle of change and if I perhaps try and give an example, you know, we as an organisation employ people across a very, very wide range of different areas. And a lot of the people who come to Mighty in the first instance will have not particularly specialised skills. They're enthusiastic, they're hardworking, they've got lots of common sense, but we can offer them opportunities to train. So apprenticeships is an area that we're very focused on and uh, you know, part of our social value strategy is around trying to develop that program yet further and to bring people on and again there's a benefit for us if we can bring in apprentices and train them as engineers they can then work in our engineering business it, it, it's it's very obvious but what we are also looking at is outside so one of the areas that we're we're interested in supporting and we work with the home office and they're very keen for suppliers to government to, to do this is to look at people for example who are uh, coming out of prison from after custodial sentences, where if they can get full-time work when they come out of prison, the likelihood of them returning to prison in relative short order is, is materially diminished. But the challenge for them is when you come out, having been in prison, can you find work? Because you have all the challenges of a 
prison record which won't be spent. So Rehabilitation of Offenders Acts won't be applying, so you'll have to disclose it. And what we are doing is looking for opportunities to bring them into our work environment. And we also are looking for ways to train people whilst they're in prison so that we can ensure they develop skills which are going to be useful, enable them to find roles within MITEI and other organisations as they come out. So there is a sort of broader uh, approach to, to what we do. Um, the other thing, I guess, is focusing on whatever we are doing. The, the re, if I'm very open, let me be open. The, the reason why we passionately support ESG is one, because it does the benefit to society as a whole. The other is because without doing it, our ability to drive our business forward would be severely diminished. And we are a very major supplier to government and to government departments. And the whole social value uh, focus is now increasingly prominent in the way in which government assess who they will award contracts to. And you know, the percentage allocated to assessments of social value contributions will differ. But in some of our big contracts, it can be as high as 20%. So when government are going through or government departments assessing, you know, has the right technical solution been offered? Has the right price been proposed? Uh, are the KPIs at a level that they're sufficient for what we need? What they'll also be looking for is what is the social value contribution that this organization will, through the life of the contract, make generally, but also in the communities in which this contract is being delivered. And that is something that you know, we, through all of the work we're doing, whether directly or through the Mighty, Mighty Foundation, it enables us to be able to showcase what we're doing and to be able to fulfill the tender requirements. And you know, I come back to a point I made a little while ago around ESG participation is going to move from being a, an optional thing that large organizations can do. It's going to become absolutely necessary in order to be able to win business, be it public or be it private sector. And you know, in terms of where companies are who are not yet as far on the journey as, as we are, I think my advice would be, is you need to embrace it passionately. You need to embrace it across your business. It is not about simply trying to do things to demonstrate a, a sort of thin veneer of uh, support and compliance. I think you need to develop it wholeheartedly and you need to look at your business through all its constituent elements and you need to assess how through those elements can we flow an, an ESG agenda. And you need to prioritize. You, know, you can't do everything yeah. uh, in one go. And many businesses are more complex than ours. In some respects, you know, the benefit of our business, having regard to the services we deliver, they, they fit very comfortably within the various categories which comprise ESG. Um, there are other businesses where I recognize it will be much more difficult. But I think that that is what people, and I'm sure many companies absolutely are on this journey already, but there needs to be a very clear recognition that it, it isn't optional and it's going to be part of your right to, to be bidding for business, uh, having that kind of capability and presence. I think you've, I mean, you've touched on the driving forces, but each business will be different depending on the nature of that business. So for some where attracting investment, attracting capital is, is critical to their operations. ESG and your sustainability credentials are becoming increasingly more important to that process. But others... It's about winning business. Um, and I think that is where we as a law firm are seeing a rapid, rapid change. 
our ESG credentials as a law firm are coming under much more frequent, much more rigorous scrutiny from our clients. And that is, of course, in part because I don't know that we like to think of ourselves as part of a supply chain, <laughs> but, but we are. Um, we're we're a, a supplier of services or an aspiring provider of services when we're pitching for business. And as, a, as part of a supply chain, our impact is part of our clients' impact. And we need to show that we are part of the solution and not part of the, of the problem. And also, as we've touched on before, there's another element here, which is that if we want to win, as we do, high value mandates to advise our clients on ESG issues, we have to be able to walk the walk and show that we walk the walk in order to be credible. And so I wanted to, uh, as a last topic for this discussion, think a bit about responsible supply chain. And I know that responsible supply chain is one of the pillars of your social value strategy. Could you tell us a little bit, and I'm sure that the fullest response would be an incredibly complex one, but I'm interested in whether you can share with us some nuggets on how you drive best practice within your supply chain generally. Um, and you mentioned to me previously a digitization project, um, digitizing the whole of your supply chain to provide you with much more detail about your suppliers at the touch of a button that's the type of innovation i i'm interested in hearing more about and i'm sure those listening will be too sure so yeah we we absolutely believe that we need to get our own supply chain aligned to the same kind of policy strategies that we have and with our buying power we spend with our suppliers around 1.3 billion pounds a year so we have an ability to influence we're we're a major uh, customer of many suppliers. In some cases, we will be their largest supplier, uh, largest customer, and therefore we should be able to influence what they they do. Now, one of the things that we are looking at, having recently combined Mighty and Interserve together, as you can probably imagine, we have an incredible number of suppliers, far more than perhaps one might ordinarily expect, and that's based on a whole range of different reasons, many of which are perfectly legitimate and, and justified. But in order for us to manage our supply chain more effectively, we are going to inevitably reduce the number of organizations we work. And to the extent we can consolidate spend with particular organizations, we will do that. But we also want to have a more open, transparent relationship with our supply chain. And the digital uh, procurement project that we are undertaking effectively is to implement a systemization, uh, digitization of, of the way in which we onboard all suppliers into the mighty supply chain, the way in which we then uh, manage them on a day-to-day -day basis, and also to, through a data lake, be able to capture data around all of our supply chain to be able to, through artificial intelligence, to, to identify trends, to identify issues, ideally before they arise and become problematic, and to manage our supply chain in a much more strategic way. Now, it's, there's always a, an inexorable thirst for information, whether or not it be supply chain or elsewhere, but it's being able to take that information and do something useful with it. And through our digital supply chain, our hope and expectation is that we will have insights around our buying patterns, the service we are getting from our supply chain, which will enable us to make some smarter decisions. What it will, focusing particularly on 
our desire to ensure that our supply chain accords with our aspirations, our ability to flow down terms of conditions will be higher. Our ability, we hope to validate compliance, will also improve. And you know, we think that if you, if you look at what our supply chain uh, sort of comprises today to what it will be in two and a half, three years, the expectation is there'll be materially fewer suppliers, probably less than half of that number which we currently have, but the relationships we'll have with them will be deeper, they'll be better, and they will be you know, to, to everybody's mutual benefit. That's, that's the key. And within that supply chain, there are a number of organizations that, that we will continue to support, in part because we think it's a great thing to do, but also because under the terms of government tendering, we, we have to do that. So working with voluntary charity and social enterprise suppliers, that will be something which we will absolutely continue to do. Uh, where we are bidding for government contracts, quite often they prescribe that where we are using subcontractors, at least 30% of those should be SMEs based in the locality where we are delivering service. Again, we will be able to capture those much more easily than perhaps we have been able to date. And you know, we can use the supply chain in a way which we hope will deliver much more positive outcomes to, to the communities in which we operate. And uh, you know, I think law firms will have a place to play in that as well. I, I, as an ex-private practice lawyer, the idea of being seen as being in the supply chain, I completely understand, <laughs> completely alien. But, but I do think that you know, all professional service firms need to recognise that they, they are effectively a supplier of services, be it bespoke legal services or accountancy services and the like. And large corporates, the way in which they will work with suppliers in the widest sense, it will almost be a one-size-fits-all. You will need to show that you are compliant, be it ESG or other requirements. And I think, but I do think that for, for law firms uh, in particular, you know, the, the opportunity there is to create credentials, to, to be able to demonstrate that you not only understand the, the underlying regimes which govern but actually you're implementing this stuff yourself and it will create a credibility that uh, you know, I think is important in order to be able to you know, support your clients properly and, and indeed to win business. I think uh, you know, it's, it's always very interesting and part of the reason whenever, for example, we are uh, out seeking to sell technology to our clients, the very first client who will acquire that technology will be one of the mighty groups. We'll install it in all of our offices to demonstrate this is how it works. Uh, and I think that's what you know, law firms need to be as passionate about ESG themselves as they are looking for mandates to advise clients on them. And uh, yeah, there are, even though you may say as a, a law firm, you know, you're sitting in an office, the opportunities perhaps are more limited than say an organization like our own. I, I would challenge that and say, actually, you have almost all the same opportunities. You may need to use different tools to get the same outcomes, and it may be relying on third parties and changing the way in which third parties provide service to you. But there is no reason why you cannot pursue as aggressively an ESG agenda as somebody like ourselves. I think you're right. And I think the, the transition that we've seen over the last four or five years um, is a movement from law firms investing in social impact projects, investing in environmental sustainability, 
but not necessarily seeing it as the other side of the coin to developing a really robust cross-practice advisory service on ESG, not seeing it as the, as the, the prerequisite, the walking the walk to, to winning that work. Um, and I think the next, and you know, we and many law firms are making this transition now, moving from thinking about ESG as, as purely risk management, so advising our clients on avoiding key risks, to, to thinking about the type of work that exists in helping our clients to pursue ESG opportunities. Um, so there's a, a, you know, as always with these movements, there is a there is a gradual but steady transition. Is that the only thinking back then to your um, days as a, a partner in private practice? If you um, if you were back there now, knowing what you know now, yeah, is there, is there anything else you would you would tell your your fellow partners about the risks and opportunities of ESG? I think law firms are innately cautious, and they are followers rather than leaders. Uh, uh, well, certainly that's been my experience and um, <laughs> I'm sure my former colleagues at uh, Mayor Brown or Clifford Charles might disagree but but I think law firms they, they are that they are businesses which are perhaps less agile than others and there's a good reason for it uh, you know that they're, they're businesses which are relatively conservative uh, you know, the idea that a law firm would operate for net margins of 4%. I'm, I'm sure yeah, the entire partnership would be having sleepless nights. Um, but I think I would encourage law firms to look to be at the cutting edge of things more so than, than, than they are. Lead, don't follow. And in particular to, uh, especially around sort of social agendas of diversity and inclusion, I would be arguing that there is more to be done. You know, Mighty is an organisation which has phenomenal diversity. Uh, I think we had, in terms of nationalities working in the business, uh, I, I will get this number wrong, but I, six months or so ago, I remember when the figure was given to me, and I think it was somewhere around 240 different nationalities. Uh, and you know, every, people from every single sort of background we have there and all have a role to play, and it's around opportunity. They give people opportunities and it's amazing what they can do. And uh, I, I recognize that professional services firms, people have to have a, you know, qualifications and experience to be able to deliver the service that clients are coming to. But there are other parts within a large law firm, professional services firm, where I think there are more opportunities to, to use the business uh, to enable social change. And I'd be encouraging firms to do that. You know, I think there is... Uh, Firms are doing, in comparison to where firms were 10, 15 years ago, it's it's very, very different, and that's a great thing. But I think that uh, you know, particularly encouraging people who perhaps don't have any family members, either who've been into to university or indeed who've ever thought of a career in professional services, you know, what, can we, what can law firms do early on to encourage uh, people from backgrounds which might not traditionally think about that as a route yeah, what can be done to to give them a taster of what uh, the kind of work they would do uh, could be available, and then providing the kind of support they need in order to 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 flourish. Yeah, well, I mean, I I completely agree. Um, and at Charles Russell Speech, these just as at other law firms, we recognise that historically we have not done enough to drive diversity and inclusion. That there is a, a long path. That we need to walk and um, we're making heavy investment 
in that now and have been for some years. Um, but that is certainly an area where we need to set and are setting challenging targets. And I think, I mean, our, apprentice, our apprenticeship scheme is a really great example of how when you vary the routes into a, a profession um, and you open up that pipeline for, for more diverse candidates, you can produce some extraordinary talent, you know, talent that the business can, can tap into. We're incredibly proud of our apprentices. And as the way in which people qualify as lawyers changes over the coming years, I hope that will also be a driver of, of change that, that law firms can work with. One final question for you, because we're running out of time, and I thought we might finish on a personal note. So, so let's agree that all of the environmental and social issues that Mighty works on and that you talk about in your social value report are, are important. Um, is there one issue that really motivates you to get out of bed in the morning? Something that really either concerns you or gets your goat? <laughs> um, some injustice that if you had a magic wand, you would fix? Gosh, that, that is a really good question. And I guess for me, it's, it's the relative inequality of the perception of value that people contribute. Now, coming as an ex-law firm partner, this probably is not a position or a view I would have held before I joined Mighty. But I see people contributing phenomenally to our business who are paid relatively little for doing it. And their contribution to our organization is as important as mine, our CEOs, our chairmen, whoever. And indeed, they are the people who day in, day out, our clients are experiencing. And they may, our clients may very occasionally uh, have engagement with uh, people who are you know, within our sort of C-suite. But day in, day out, it's the people on the front line doing great stuff and doing it amazingly well. And I think in five years, what I would love to see is there being, using the government's terminology, but in a slightly different way, more of a levelling up agenda. And that will cost, that will cost business more. Uh, you know, people will need to pay more for those this kind of services which we deliver. But the impact on companies that are relatively profitable will be not particularly significant. The impact on our frontline staff and their families and the opportunities which will be created through them will be really material. And you know, I think what, what, that for me would be a great outcome. Government could do it by increasing the national minimum wage up to or above uh, the equivalent of uh, foundation wage. And you know, it is moving slowly in the right direction, but I, I think it could move faster and it would enable, you know, it would improve the life opportunities, not just of the people directly who are being paid, but their families. And I think there are you know, a number of sort of knock-ons when people's lives become challenged and pressurized, which costs society as a whole significant sums. Actually, if you could enable people to be earning wages, which they can genuinely live by in a way which enables them to avoid some of those difficulties, I think net-net, the benefit for society as a whole would be significant. So that, that would be my, uh, my sort of five-year ambition, heavily influenced because of the kind of business uh, which Mighty is, which is a, 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 you know, a people business with 78,000 colleagues. And uh, uh, as, as you can see, it, it, it impacts one because you see it day in, day out, and in particular, the fantastic thing that our frontline colleagues do. 
Well, I think, and I, meant, I said this to you before, I think if the S in ESG has traditionally been more overlooked than in particular the E, in part because it's perhaps harder to conceptualise or harder to quantify and put metrics around, or at least that's the perception. Um, that is not at all the impression that your social value report conveys. Um, what it what it discloses is a, is a real commitment to to the S, to to the to the people impacts of your business, both within your organisation and more broadly. Um, and I think that's that's to be noted and, and applauded. Can I can I thank you for your time, for your candour, <laughs> for your insights, um, and can I get you to to come back in five years time and tell us if you've managed to <laughs> if you've managed to influence the leveling up agenda <laughs> i would be absolutely delighted although i'm hoping i might be retired by then but <laughs> if i'm not I, if i'm still working away i'll be delighted in any event well you, you can be retired you can, you'll be even more candid i expect <laughs> yes, yes hopefully thank you Peter. thanks so much thank you this is a charles russell speechley's podcast 